Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate Sleep Edition, coming to you from Ireland, with folks joining us from Canada, New York, Belize and Cork. So, some closer to sleep than others. We've gathered to discuss sleep, power and naturally capitalism. So obviously a special welcome to those listening while asleep, which is a thing, and to those listening while they can't sleep, definitely a thing, and to those listening with the glow of having achieved their sleep goals. Because sleep goals too are a thing, leveraged by Apple recently in an advertisement featuring a woman whose carefully planned sleep goals come off, leading her to awaken, punching the air in an ecstasy of achievement. But is sleep really just another task, another skill we must acquire, another part of the quantified self that must be extracted and delivered to the algos, another place in which our technologies are obliged to pursue us, just another place to reproduce the inequalities of our world? Could sleep be other a shelter, a site of resistance, an engine, another life, another world. Here to help us explore sleep is our panel who, in one way or another, have tossed and turned in the service of sleep. First up, we have Dr. Cressida Hayes, and she's Professor of Political Science and Philosophy at the University of Alberta, Canada, focusing on feminist philosophies and the analysis of sleep. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Sleep is the New Sex. Great title. Welcome, Cressida. Thank you. Dr. Fanny Sosa and Navilda Costa are artists and co-creators of the also brilliantly titled art project, Black Power Naps, which focuses on rest as resistance and explores the historical and modern-day intersection of sleep, race and power. Hello, Sosa and Neville. Hello. Hey guys, thanks for having us. Peter Power is an artist, director, composer and writer whose recent work has explored the night lives of insomniacs, uh, one of which he is, and you may have heard him reading his poem Bound and Bounded in our debate from last year's Beta Festival. Hello, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me again. Always good to see you. Dr. Antonio Zadra is a sleep scientist, lucid dreamer, author, clinical psychologist and professor at the University of Montreal, where he's a core collaborator on the sociability of sleep, an immense interdisciplinary research and creation project exploring sleep. In 2022, he published When Brains Dream. Hello, Tony. Thank you for having me. Given the subject matter, I wanted to start off by asking everyone a quick question to get us warmed up, and, and then uh, everyone can have a little nap before they hear their names called again through a veil of sleep. So can I ask you, one by one, to tell us a little bit about your own sleep practice? How would you describe your own sleep the last time you had some? Could we start with you, Dr. Cressida Hayes? Well, that's a hard question to start with. I had trouble getting to sleep last night, partly because I have a stressful job at the university and all sorts of things happen that, that keep me up, but also because I have a 15-year-old son uh, and he doesn't like to go to sleep, so I'm desperate to find a way to nod off, whether it's going to be drug-assisted or simply my own kind of exhaustion kicking in, but at the same time I'm thinking about somebody else's sleep and whether he's getting to sleep and what I can do about it. So one's own sleep might be a problem, but you're always implicated somehow in other people's sleep, certainly if you live with others. I guess that's the sociability of sleep in effect. Dr Sosa, how did you sleep the last time you gave it a go? I don't have a hard time necessarily going to sleep, but I do have very vivid dreams 
and well I know that means that I'm not necessarily resting while I'm sleeping and I'm just sorting through things just thinking about problems and how to solve them during my sleep so I would say I have a very busy type of sleep you're happy to to put in the work while asleep uh Navil the last time I slept was this morning at 5am. Generally, I fall asleep to the sound of television. I like to have sort of life happening around me while I'm going to sleep because it helps me kind of get my mind off of the task of sleeping because it is a task, a job that we all have to complete in order to keep our bodies going. Well, I, I guess as we get on, we'll see if there is any escape from that task. Dr. Antonio Zadra, how have you been sleeping? Um, I might be the outlier here. Uh, I've been sleeping great. And if I take Professor Hayes' uh, work that uh, uh, sleep is the new sex, I had great sex for about seven and a half hours last night. And I have a pre-sex routine, which is uh, read physical books before I engage in that activity. And for me, it's not a task. It's something sleep is something that I enjoy. Though I did uh, have a nightmare last night, which occurs to me quite rarely, uh, where I got shot by um, a very good friend of mine who shot me accidentally. And this actually woke up my wife because I was moaning and for the wrong reasons. More, more sociable sleep there. Peter Power, how did you sleep? I know that can be a sensitive subject for you. Terribly, but that's okay. I have a very resentful relationship with sleep. I resent needing to sleep. I don't enjoy unconsciousness, mainly because when I do sleep, I dream aggressively vividly. And so often I feel like the day is just a 24-hour experience of different perspectives. So I prefer to be in the more controlled state of being awake than in the less controlled state of being asleep. Um, so not well and fitfully and in fragments, uh, but that would be relatively normal for me at this point. So... And what happens when you when you give up sleeping each morning? When I emerge from the trauma of trying to sleep, I feel very celebratory about waking up. And so I do have quite an overwhelming euphoria when I wake, but more so from the task, as it was put just there, of trying to sleep. It can be difficult, painful. The body is not really there with me. The mind is a little bit groggy, but I'm, I'm happy to sort of emerge from it. And I get a sense of relief is the word I would get just from having to deal with it, actually, I think. So there's a joy to that. So as somebody who has kind of this sort of quite vexed relationship to sleep, uh, you know, that it can be quite a fragmentary experience instead of this sort of little contained bundle. Do you feel that there are accommodations that the world could be making for for people like yourself whose experience of sleep is like yours? Yes. I mean, um, I think from a basic level, if we talk about the sociability of sleep, a large part of the vexation of my life is managing a schedule with um, other people. So that can be quite difficult for people who are close to you or in your proximity. I remember one person referring to me in a relationship that they had spent their entire time with me where I had always been awake. They had never seen me fall asleep and they'd never seen me wake up. And so this sense of me being always conscious was very strange for them. And I'd never really thought about it from that perspective, that there was this person who was always alive <laughs> and never down. I think society has a lot to answer for in forcing a sort of a seven or eight hour cycle on the world. I've experimented with different ways of sleeping. I tried a sort of biphasic sleep pattern where I split it in half and let myself have four and four hours. I've tried to let it just happen when my body's exhausted. Ultimately, you are battling a structure outside of you that is um, industrialized, that is capitalist, that is uh, unwilling to allow you 
to sleep the way you need and makes you feel lazy when you can't be at things fully fresh at 9am. I think the world could give us a little bit more understanding because of the way in which my sleep has tortured me in one way. It has also given me an opportunity to see aspects of the world and times of the world that often go unseen. I feel extremely privileged to have this experience as opposed to burdened by it. Uh, so, Sir Navild, uh, in in your project Black Power Naps, I guess that this sort of autonomy that uh, Peter is talking about, uh, that he takes some sort of pleasure in, is sort of very much absent. In your project, you're looking at how there are strong historical links to sleep deprivation for enslaved people in, in the United States, and then there are kind of modern-day knock-ons from that. It's something that your work is exploring. Tell us a little bit about how you're looking at this question. Our work is highlighting something called the sleep gap, which was a term developed by other surveyors of this instance where Black Americans are getting one hour less sleep than their white counterparts. Of course, as a Black person, I know a qualitative experience and a lived experience of what that is and what that means. We're looking at the gap that is a political gap, a distance from access to a holistic life, you know, a life where you actually get enough rest and you can regenerate your cells at the rate that you should naturally be. Tell us a little bit about the experience of the, the installation version of Black Power Naps. The installation itself is a whimsical and also technical almost response to the sleep gap in the sense that we are working with sculptures, but we are working with sculptures that are soft and that invite touch or invite the body at rest. And that is an experience that it's different to most people's experience with art or with sculpture where you're brought up to kind of look but don't touch or you're brought up to think of sculptures as these hard imposing structures that are supposed to create awe but you don't really relate to them with other senses than sight and so each island we call them islands so there's like seven or eight different proposals that welcome the body at rest and you know specifically the black body at rest so there's different themes for each island for example we have the atlantic reconciliation station which is about afro-diasporic people black people's relationship to water obviously thinking about the middle passage and how a lot of our ancestors drowned and were thrown above water and this long-standing stereotype that black people don't know how to swim and that black people are afraid of water and so the atlantic reconciliation station is a waterbed i think a lot of people are surprised to hear that there are studies that measure that white people sleep better on average than black people and people that have a racialized experience. I guess a lot of people don't think that racism has an impact on sleep. We tend to think that racism has an impact on our wake life. It's important for us at Black Power Naps to evoke how racism or other forms of oppression take over everything, including the times where you're not conscious and when you're not awake. So that's an important part of the motivation for Black Power Naps. 
So, Tony, there's a very specific incidence that our sleep is bound up with our own identity and how our attitudes, positive and negative, and our experiences of sleep are very much guided by aspects of our waking life, our gender, ethnicity and cultural background, and even wealth. There are lots of relationships in our world that are replicated in sleep. Absolutely. And the data indicating these societal gaps in sleep is overwhelmingly clear and robust. So it's not really subject to debate anymore, even though I would say even about a decade ago, very few researchers, let alone sleep researchers, uh, were examining such questions. But it has sort of a, a pernicious, even feedback loop onto wakefulness. Up to 50, 60, in some studies, 70% of difficulties we have in sleep quantity or sleep quality are entirely attributable to social factors. So the society we live in and our place within it and our conception of it uh, certainly plays a big role in our sleep quality. But now we also know that sleep plays a key role in our physical health as well, also in our mental well-being. So it's not just that the society we live in contributes or has a direct impact on our sleep, but then that sleep quality tends to have a negative impact on our health. And these things go back and forth. We heard from other guests already about how sleep is viewed more as something as a choice. And the idea, again, that uh, socioeconomic status, race, and so on has little bearing on sleep is erroneous and isn't always a choice. And many factors, uh, loneliness, social isolation, we know play a role in sleep quality. We know living in noisy environments, having to do night work, um, which is also disproportionate uh, in our society with uh, certain um, races, living in unsafe, disorderly neighborhoods, exposure to bright lights. I mean, there's many variables come into play with sleep quality. And so sometimes when I read people saying, well, you know, you should have these blackout curtains and you wake up and you should face the east, those possibilities aren't there equally for everyone. And I think the same point as often is made with what kind of food we have access to and when and how and the limitations also apply to sleep. And so sometimes I have trouble when I hear these kinds of advices been given, not because they're wrong, but only because they apply to a very small sliver of the general population. Cresta Hayes, you've looked at ideas of what good and bad sleep are. And I mean, as we were saying there, they, they will somehow represent your own identity. But there are also these kind of mythologies of, of what good sleep represents and how it fits into the overall way we'd like to shape the world. This idea we had at the beginning, sleep must be productive in some ways and rationed in other ways. Tell us a little bit about how societal expectations around sleep have changed. It can be quite a, a gendered change. that There are societal expectations about working from home or having meetings out of hours, which are now impinging on sleep. How is that situation beginning to uh, unravel? Oh, gosh, that's a complicated question. I mean, there's often talk of a sleep crisis. And I, of course, that's somewhat manufactured, but it's not completely wrong. And it has to do with something that Peter referenced at the beginning, that we live in a phase of late industrial capitalism where a lot of social structures are really different. So more and more people have to work highly so-called flexible hours in precarious jobs 
In European countries, there are so-called zero hours contracts where you have to be constantly available for work, but you never know when you'll actually be called to work. Practices like clopening, where you have to show up to close a business in the evening and then come back in the morning to open it. So our time is managed in all sorts of ways that make it harder to then work with sleep and the way that work bleeds into the domestic. Working from home, which people have always done, but is it was increasingly and suddenly a feature of the last few years for many, um, has led to uh, domestic space being increasingly workspace. And so the article that I wrote uh, with my student, Hannah Haugen, was about working from bed, in fact, and what it means for your bed itself to be the site of your work. And the way that discourses around uh, work and sleep and the bedroom really didn't seem to understand this as a, as a justice question. What does it mean for your employer to expect you to work from your bed um, and to be seen in your bedroom and in your bed by clients, by them, and so on. And that expectation of surveillance, of infiltration of your private space has huge impacts on, on sleep, but gets kind of covered up with a discourse of professionalism, right? So make sure that your bedroom looks professional. Make sure that that, that big dildo isn't on the shelf behind you. You know, do that kind of check to make sure that it's a proprietary professional space with very little critical thinking about why. Why should I have to remove things that might offend an employer from a space that is my own? I think that practices of work have changed in all sorts of ways that impact in very, very blunt and direct ways now on the spaces in which we also sleep. You've also written a little bit about the mythology of sleep and the sort of great anti-sleep heroes who kind of become colossus in, in, in the world of sleep by not sleeping. One of the people is Elon Musk, who famously abhors sleep. From Benjamin Franklin all the way through to Elon Musk, uh, people who reject sleep who say sleep is for the weak, are selling an ideology of work through an ideology of sleep. And I think Elon Musk, who uh, has copied that discourse, I think it's an overt reference, it's not an accident, has uh, perpetuated that idea that if you treat sleep as somehow uh, inadequate or um, a waste of time, that not, it's not just you and your success, but you can uh, drag others along with you things that I would consider to be just appalling working conditions are often justified by reference to this understanding of, of work as virtuous. The Protestant ethic that Max Weber described well over 100 years ago now is still very much alive in some northern global north cultures. Now, Wilden Sosa, for Elon Musk, who, who we mentioned earlier, and, and Thomas Edison and Margaret Thatcher as well, of course, uh, who would have been better off sleeping a lot more. There is a sense of autonomy in depriving yourself of sleep, but it's sort of mirrored in, in a, in a non-autonomous deprivation of people from marginalised groups. How can your project approach those inequalities? I have focused a lot on the policy side of structural racism and the impacts it has on sleep. And obviously policy impacts the architecture of the city. And in general, the work is combating this anti-homelessness that is at the root of a lot of the city's planning, how they spend their money, what they pay attention to. I think that what our project is impacting is discourse and people's ideas around sleep. 
poor sleep or the sleep gap or sleep inequality is not an individual problem, but it's a public health issue that needs coordinated efforts by the government, by institutions that can have an effect on their constituent sleep. And then simply put, there is something called hostile architecture and defensive design, which is a fact that cities and, and urban centers are designed to, to keep people in a transient position, meaning that you cannot sit down, you cannot lay down, you cannot station in the city. And that is one of the big things that we are responding with Black Power Naps, where we're creating a public space where you can sit down, when you can charge your phone, where you can lay down. And even just that is really altering. For example, when we did it at MoMA, the way that people experience the museum, to have a place to kind of have a sensory calming environment and regroup and, 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 and breathe um, is shown to have a very, very impactful effect on how people experience you know, everyday life. Wellness industries are still very far away and accessible from our communities. So what Black Power Naps does and through our own work and our, our presence and the fact that I am a part of the community I seek to serve, it is in fact bringing that conversation to our people. I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about something which is sort of hovers around the edge of sleep. Peter, you, you were talking about how your sleep is so fractured to the extent that maybe you live a more kind of homogenized sleep-wake dream reality life. And I wanted to know what that means in your work. There's something sort of liminal between being awake and being in a state of dreaming. That doesn't have to necessarily mean my body is prone in a bed and unconscious. I hope that what my work can do and what art can do uh, is to create a sense of a lexicon for that space, a much broader lexicon for the sort of like grayer, less known spaces of the world. And I'm hoping maybe ultimately that at some point those two universes will collide and I'll have a good night's sleep. For now, I think my role and in my work, my role is to become expert in some way in dreaming and bring that into the waking world. Art and making art is a violent resistance to that sense of compartmentalization of the algorithm and of the sort of requirement of participate, like forced participation in this guided life. It feels like an unguided life and that feels revolutionary to me, so. The kind of emancipatory space of dreams, though, is also under threat. And I suppose that's one of the, the more startling things that, that has been happening in the area of sleep. Tony, Tony Zadra, you've been writing a little bit about how sleep may not be a reservation, sleep may not be a place, and dreams may not be a place where you can escape the algorithm and the effects of the selling machine. Absolutely. And that is something that worries uh, me and uh, many of our colleagues. We wrote a letter detailing some of these concerns about upcoming texts and plans that essentially seek to use the state of sleep, in particular the stages in which we dream, to try to influence um, purchasing uh, what we think, uh, what we do upon awakening, without 
without us necessarily having any memory of what was done to us. And this might sound very far-fetched, science fiction-like, but it isn't. If 50 sleep researchers are willing to write and sign a letter outlining these concerns, that we think there's a chance that this is coming. And if you think about what people are willing to pay to have 30 seconds of your attention during the Super Bowl, how much do you think companies are willing to pay to have access to your mind for several hours on a nightly basis. Uh, It turns out it's a lot. Sleep and dream researchers are developing tools known as dream engineering to try to access or modify dream content, but to treat depression, to uh, treat nightmares, to foster creativity. Uh, The same tools can be used to uh, try to implant ideas, uh, change people's behaviors, uh, not necessarily for the better. Over 70% of the world's largest uh, advertising companies have actual programs underway to try to develop uh, tools and mechanisms using already technology that is already accessible. Most people have smart devices in their bedrooms, devices that record them, uh, albeit for snoring or other things and that through these means it is possible to um, potentially influence people. We believe that sleep should be our last refuge and especially dreaming. Uh, It's probably through these community discussions that we can really start changing people's attitudes and rapport with their sleep and I would also say with their dreams, uh, which is sleep's even poorer brother. There's a rich history of valuing dreams and dream sharing, which has been completely evacuated by uh, modern day society pretty much. And that may also come at a price. Cresta, you, you wanted to come in there on, on the subject of dreams. There's a long intellectual history, in, in, even in the West, of valuing dreams. I mean, think of Freud's interpretation of dreams, right? That you learn so much from your dreams. They tell you about your unconscious. But there are also lots of cultures in which the dream is a central source of knowledge. It could be because your ancestors are speaking to you directly through a dream. It could be because it's a vision. It's a prediction of the future. It could be a warning. There are many peoples for whom the dream serves a vital cultural purpose. And so forms of sleep disorder that make it more difficult to connect with your dreams are not just damaging for individuals, but culturally undermining uh, a culture that doesn't value the dream or that thinks it's just a sort of set of random misfires of some neurons is, is also a culture, I think, that's neglecting important forms of insight. And dreams are political too, whether literal or metaphorical. And I think that that use of metaphor, that, that's an important use for the language of dreaming. A lot of the kind of hustle and grind discussion about sleep and work makes it seem as if it's just a a set of two singular states, which just isn't true and covers over a lot of politics, I think. Now, Navil Dansosa, how how do you value dream in your work? I guess like Paranaps is encouraging fantasy. It's encouraging dream. It's encouraging colour, colour saturation encouraging whimsy and leaning into your cravings of wanting to indulge in, you know, getting into a soft surface, for example. There's a quote by Langston Hughes. He says, um, how can we dream if we do not sleep, if we cannot sleep? And yeah, like you put it, Cressida, uh, Martin Luther King had a dream and something that uh, I think is really important about his statement and Black Power Naps is the whimsy 
whimsy being sort of also this subset in like our societal thinking <laughs> that belongs to something that's um, illiterate, that is not intellectual, that it is, you know, something that exists in a fantasy world. And what I'm trying to say is Black Power Naps is encouraging fantasy. It's encouraging dream. It's encouraging leaning into your cravings of wanting to indulge in, you know, getting into a soft surface, for example. We have a, an island called Black, it's the Black Bean Bed, which is a pit of three tons of black beans where people can literally submerge themselves fully. Um, and this I think is coming, it's coming from our dreams, you know, like I've always dreamt of <laughs> jumping in a pile of beans, apparently. And I went and made that dream happen. And it turns out other people really enjoyed that dream that I had, you know what I mean? So I think encouraging whimsy, encouraging people to dream is uh, at the fundamental core of Black Power Naps, um, you know, from the color scheme <laughs> and the way that we imagine the space. The incitement to dream is actually a great place for us to leave our conversation for this time and call bedtime for everybody. Bedtime for our panellists, Dr. Cressida Hayes, Dr. Sosa and Naval Acosta, Peter Power and Dr. Antonio Zaja. Thank you all for chasing sleep with us this time. Surely we'll all meet up again in our dreams tonight to carry on this conversation. And I hope you, dear listener, will join us for that. Failing which, there's new episodes of Culture File each Monday to Friday, and the Culture File Weekly happens each Saturday tea time on RTE Lyric FM and via podcast. Till next time, bye now.